Good afternoon. It's four o'clock and the second Tuesday of the month. Time for Boat Talk to float in on WERU-FM Blue Hill and WERU.org. I'm Alan Sprague, pre-recording this show, so we can't take phone calls yet. Soon, I'm joined by John Johansson, editor of Maine Coastal News. Mike Joyce will join us in a few minutes. We started with John telling the local boatyard news. Well, there's an interesting one. I just got an email that says I can talk about it. Uh, a lot of people know Richard Stanley because, of course, on the board of trustees is his father, Ralph. And Ralph is as well-known boat builder, and so is in Richard. Well, Richard uh, no longer is living on MDI and no longer, and right now is not even working on MDI. He's in Portland. And he's oh. working on a boat called Iroquois. And she was built by the Greeby uh, Company. She's 55 foot. I think she was built in the 1950s. And he's down there and putting a new bottom in the boat. So it's a huge project. They wanted to repower her. But when they started taking her apart, she's lightly built. So they're going to stiffen her up and make her you know, strong enough to take the new engines. I don't know if we talked about the last time. There was a boat at Joe Lowell's uh, shop in Yarmouth called Royal. And, of course, most people in the lobster boat world knows who Royal Lowell is. And Royal died. This was the last boat he designed and the last boat he was working on when he died in 1983. And the boat was finished up by Dan Lowell, his brother, and his son, Billy Lowell. And the boat is now in the shop. She's been taken apart. Her owner is, who's owned it right from the day she was built, is from Vineyard Haven. He's, so far, he's going to go ahead with the project. It's a total rebuild. The keel's coming out next. So everything center line has been removed so they can drop the keel and get her out. So that's the big thing. Those are the big projects that I found out on the, on the streets. Uh, lobster boat racing is coming up in two weekends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in two weekends we got lobster boat racing and there's some interesting boats coming because there's some pictures floating around on the internet. Of course, we, I think we talked about the one that's got the helicopter engine and that's going to be interesting because nobody uh, can figure out how he's going to make it work. We're not sure. I'm sure he has by now figured it out, but it's going to be interesting. You know, 2,350 horsepower in a, you know, a boat that's 33 feet long. Could be interesting. So be lucky yeah. if it stays on the water. Well, that's okay. So long as it, you know, <laughs> and we have a film crew coming from New York City to film this because they're coming up to film Heather Thompson, who runs uh, Gold Digger uh, out of uh, Harrington. And they're going to make the trek down from Harrington to Booth Bay to film this race. And then they're going up to Rockland to film the race the next day. So it's a week from uh, two weeks from Saturday that we are in Booth Bay, and then the following day we're in Rockland for the races. That must all be outside the breakwater, right? We're right inside the breakwater. In no fact, kidding. most people go to Rockland, they sit on the breakwater, and then they can come and go as they want. Ah. So it's really nice. It's yep. one of the best places to watch the races from. You know, Sounds Joe's great. Sports better because you is good because you can stand on the bridge. Pemaquid's good because we race right into the gut. So, you know, there's some places that are really good, some places that it's very difficult to watch the races. Yeah. But it should be a good year. 
Then the next weekend, we go to Bass Harbor, right in Allen's backyard. And hopefully, some of the fast, fast boats will be there. We're hoping uh, Wild Wild West will be ready. I know they've been working on the boat. They can't fit. Uh, I know they took apart the steering gear and not, they can't figure out how it worked this long and didn't have a major malfunction, uh, but they repaired it so that it will never have a malfunction now. So, you know, and then uh, Wayne Beal and uh, Jeremy Beal, they're coming out. Well, Wayne had his boat last year, but Jeremy built a brand new boat with a big diesel engine in it. So he should be in the top, top class. There's three boats. They're all three Northern Bay 38s, and they're all powered with uh, the same engine. So they're all about 18, 815 horsepower, or at least so they say. So they should be pretty close to, to you know, stem to stem when they come across the line. So that could be interesting. And they're all supposed to be there at Booth Bay. So Booth Bay could be quite the place to go. Next. We had a Zoom meeting with Michael Carr, an old friend who writes for the online marine news site, G-Captain. John Johansson and I started without Mike, hoping that he might join us later when he was able. So I don't know if Michael, Mike Joyce is going to be able to join us or not. Um, Mike, he is now suffering from shingles. Ah, rats. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, have, have you know about shingles? Well, I, I went and got the shingles vaccine back when I turned whatever age it is that you're supposed to get it. And I, then I got the booster. You know, having been in the merchant marine and in the military, I'm pretty, you know, focused on, you know, get your shots when you're supposed to because you never know where you might be. So, yeah, but I mean, you can still get it. And I, I feel for people that, I have a, a boat talk story from back in Bass Harbor Marine days. I don't know if you were there at the time when a, an English lady, and I can't remember her name, an English lady who was like a world traveler came across and landed at Bass Harbor Marine um, with two young sailors that she sort of taken on to help her out and uh, they were very novice. But anyway, she was a nurse, and during the crossing, she came down with shingles. Oh, my word. Yeah, offshore. I'm a retired nurse, having spent 40 years working nursing, and I've been sailing for 40-plus years. We've had this boat, Tamar Swallow, for six years, and she sailed about 18,000 miles, mainly in the Atlantic, going to and from the Azores and sailing in Western Europe. I've only come across her the one time in the, uh, the whole way across. It was 900 plus miles from uh, Portugal to the Azores, and from the Azores to Halifax, Nova Scotia, it was 1,880 miles. I reckon to average about 3,000 miles a year on this boat, and I also sail on other people's boats. <laughs> no. Yes, I got shingles on the last week of coming across. Um, it was fairly painful. I f unfortunately had no antivirals. I've got everything else for broken legs, you name it. We've got it in this locker, um, but I had nothing for shingles. Fortunately, I had some strong painkillers and two super guys crewing for me, so we got to Halifax in one piece. Now uh, the next morning I was up to the doctor and I have to say everybody in Canada was brilliant and I was laid out for five weeks in my bunk 
in Halifax, while the rest of the guys actually looked around Halifax, Nova Scotia, about about going through customs. If you're an offshore cruising boat and you have a valid reason for carrying the medication, by and large they're very sympathetic. I as yet have never had any problems. I don't carry anything that has anything to do with injectables other than adrenaline for emergencies and I don't carry any uh, opioids uh, as a safety measure. But I feel that if you're actually going to be sailing across the Atlantic you have to make sure you're in good health and uh, be prepared to have things go wrong and to make the best of a bad job. You're responsible for your own safety when you go across the Atlantic. It's a big place and a dangerous place. Somewhere like any Chandra, you've got West Marine, uh, which is a big uh, store. Uh, they will sell various kits, and they will sell kits for just inshore, offshore, and for longer distance. What I do recommend before you go buying kits is that you get yourself properly trained and able to look after your crew if you actually are going out there. It's something that you don't want to contemplate, but if you're going to go on a long voyage, you really got to think about it. I remember take, taking, uh, back when I was in the Coast Guard and I owned my own boat and went sailing a lot by myself, I went and signed up and took an advanced medical, emergency medical course to learn how to give injections and start IVs and do all that because I thought, you know what? What if I'm out there by myself and I slice my leg open, you know, be a bad time to go, oh, maybe I should have thought about this before, <laughs> you know, so you don't, it's these things you don't want to think about, but you really probably should. Mike did join us. We like to say on Boat Talk that you can't fake experience. That's you right. You have to learn from other people and their yeah. mistakes, especially, you know, if you yeah. ain't got enough time or lives to make all those mistakes yourself. Exactly. And again, some things can be in, you know, anticipated and, and, you know, again, uh, blood on deck. Yes. Last time it was a big Dorado and that wasn't even good. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's like, damn, I didn't know fish had so much blood inside of them. I know. Yeah, Nice teak deck wasn't mine. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. It's true. Remember all of those uh, incidents in the BOC and stuff where those guys operated like on their, elbow remember that one there was yeah. one that was real extensive and you know, parts of your body where you it's like okay i gotta give myself anesthesia and i gotta stitch this up and i i know it's but i guess that you know you're in a southern ocean and nobody's gonna help come save your ass you gotta suck it up and go you know what i can't whine and cry and hope for something else i just gotta like deal with it so I know. Yeah, some of it was real extensive stuff. One had, what was it? Was it a real bad infection in the elbow or something that he had? Yeah, to I'm trying to remember. But, you know, infections, that 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 is what's, I mean, an open wound you can sort of deal with. It's right there. But infection, sanitary um, problems where you, where you can't see the problem and you're dependent on antibiotics. And because once an infection gets out of control, you're, I mean, unless you got a hospital or something. Goose is cooked. Yeah. Well, that's the, you know, that's the basic problem is uh, there are no hospitals handy when you're offshore. So um, preparation is good. Um, going right to Mike. Uh, well, I've been shot for the COVID and I come down with some shingles, which is terrible. Uh, but I'm worried more about my left knee. 
My I walk with a cane now. It's in pretty much full-time pain. Hard to get up and down and in and out of a dinghy. Yeah. And I have really good sea legs. Nothing I love out of sight of land. Um, you know, uh, motion of the ocean. I'm worried about uh, rocking with the boat on my painful knee, you know. Tom and I are pretty close. And he's trying to cheer himself up by buying a Cabo Rico, what we used to call Leaky Tiki. They've already been, already been repaired. The teak's all gone on the deck and stuff. And um, we're bringing it up from Marion on Saturday to Booth Bay. He wants to live on it, damn fool. <laughs> and, uh, i got to help him. It's going to be a very good time to get out of sight of land. I think it's going to be the best medicine I'm going to have, uh, like I say, just recently. But going for a boat ride, that, uh, like I say, whether uh, I should or not, we're going. So um, going to be interesting. From Marion to Booth Bay, is that what you said? Yep. The former owner of the boat, his wife wanted him to sell the boat. He apparently has waterfront houses in both towns. He thinks it's a three-day trip. We're going to do it in 24 hours or less. Leave late afternoon for the tide in the canal and be in Booth Bay uh, lunchtime next day, you know. So wow. that's what we're planning. He thinks three people on the boat's not enough for night, night watches because a night watch should take three people. One on the wheel, one in the cockpit to help navigate, and one on the foredeck looking at nobody in the Gulf of Maine. It's just not how we do things. We solo the boat, you know. Um, he can sleep through the night if he likes. It's going to be interesting to take him, show him stuff, but his own boat. Well, I'm not one to ever tell people how to live their lives, but I don't eat, I don't go out in the water anymore without a, I have a personal EPIRB, and I don't go out anywhere. I mean, I don't even drive out of my driveway without my little EPIRB with me. So I just... Uh, Hope you guys have an EPIRB, so if things don't yeah. get dicey, you know, you can just push the button and get help. This guy's master of the universe, uh, retired lawyer, black belt, coach of the year. He's got he's got everything we need. Yeah, you know? cool. And he's super compulsive, organized. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> we're all <laughs> right. And then he's going to meet us. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and the thing is, we're really good at moving boats around, you know, only done it, uh, you know, 300 plus times. And like I say, do, do know our stuff. So going to be interesting. Yeah. Not his regular gig at all. <laughs> so, so Michael, um, personal EPIRB, is that something you wear? Yeah, it's, uh, it's um, hold on. For those of you not familiar with the term EPIRB, it stands for Emergency Position Indicating Radio Beacon. It's a small battery-powered electronic device which, when activated, sends a signal to overhead aircraft and satellites calling for help. It's an EPIRB, but you register it, and you get a decal that goes on it, and um, you register with uh, NOAA and the Coast Guard, and then... If there's an emergency, little antenna pops out, little antenna pops out, and it's got a button on the side, and you push it, and uh. this one won't come on because it's a demo, but, and it floats, though you still want to tether it to you, and then it's, it's a 406 EPIRB, and, you know, it sends out a signal just like a big EPIRB would, just that the battery doesn't last as long, and then, the no, if you've registered, like, then they call the emergency number, you're in a file, and you your wife or girlfriend say, yeah, that, that dumbass <laughs> went out sailing. Go say Don't him. bother. Or don't leave bother. No, leave him out there. It's his own damn fault. <laughs> but, you know, they cost $300, I guess. And, yeah, I've got one. 
whenever I go out diving, I have it in my dive bag and when I go out to captain a dive boat or something, even though the boats have them, I always have an inflatable vest I wear and I, I've got that on my belt because um, you just never know what's going to happen or who's, you know, and as a captain, if you, I, you know, you have the deck hand and dive master and all, but if I should fall over the side or something, you know, I, it would, chaos would reign pretty quickly. <laughs> Has there been any um, actual cases where the personal EPIRBs has worked? I think there are, though I don't really track it. But I know, you know, I get those Coast Guard news feeds every day that, you know, uh, report all the things the Coast Guard is doing. And there have been rescues where, in fact, no, I take that back. There have been some recently where the, the somebody in a um, kayak or small boat got in trouble and activated the EPIRB and the Coast Guard, you know, came and rescued them. So, yeah, the problem these days is that there's, especially here in Florida, where the um, the average boater is uh, not very intelligent, to be frank. They go out, you know, uh, and without any safety equipment and get into trouble all the time. And what's really sad is so many people, you know, drown or die or can't be found especially since the Gulf Stream comes roaring up, you know, through the Keys and up the East Coast. It's not like you're floating around in, you know, somewhere where your drift rate is relatively small and the Coast Guard can, you know, pick a datum point and start searching. You fall in the water off of West Palm Beach, you know, 24 hours later, you're a thousand miles to the north. So it's tough. Yeah, you have to be really, really conscientious. I don't think people think about it enough. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell a, a, a one quick story I experienced going off uh, of Florida, off the uh, the east side of Florida, heading south. Um, we were probably ten miles offshore, out of sight of land, and this uh, really spiffy uh, cigarette boat pulled up next to our boat with two very young looking teenagers on board. And what they could, all they could say was, which way is Florida? Which way? They had no compass, no, oh, yeah. no nothing. It was like, holy cow. You could have, uh, I could have probably killed them by pointing. East. But Yeah, right. Well, I tell you, the thing about human nature seems, in Florida, having lived in New England and then living in Florida, Florida, you know, most of the time, the Florida weather is benign. It's sunny and warm and light breezes and the water's warm and it, it lulls you in. And if you've lived down here all your life uh, and don't understand the dynamics of the ocean, it lulls you into this. Like getting in a boat and going out is like getting in your car and drive into the food store people just you know they just do it and and then something bad happens and they die and everyone's like oh that's so sad and they you know they wonder why it happened um whereas if you grow up in new england or sail in new england where there's granite and rocks and cold water and you know you you learn very quick that you really have to have your shit together um sailor language and so i'm always surprised by the people that sail in Florida and take things so cavalierly. And that's like, 
course, there's lots of boat owners that don't even hardly dare to untie their boat. <laughs> well, that thing either. Yes. No. And then, if you go, I'm laughing because if you go down to Fort Lauderdale or Miami, I mean, these get these big mega yachts and they're just there to sit at the dock and have cocktail parties on. So yep. you always want to say, good, just never take it out. All right. Just leave it here. Show your buddies that you've got a lot of money and pretty girls and just don't go out. <laughs> it's like, so, oh, my word. Not a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, Michael, um, we, we want to talk a little bit about the Gulf of Mexico and the uh, the article that you wrote about a week ago for G Captain, or at least appeared on G Captain. Yes, a week ago uh, about the uh, the jackup boat that right. in real serious trouble. I was surprised that the, I think the article said they were thirty miles offshore and they were still trying to jack up. Then we, the the bottom must be pretty close to be able to do that. Yeah. So having, well, first, let me say, I, I, I really want to compliment uh, John Conrad and Mike Schuler who run G Captain. They're really great guys. And I, I used to write for them regularly and I just ran out of time. They always published my stuff and it was great. I think I wrote for them once a week for like a year and a half or two years. But, you know, when I, I see something, I often say to John or Mike and Mike runs it day to day. I say, Hey Mike, I, I feel the earth. <laughs> I feel the urge to write something. If I write this, they, will you publish it? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Send it to me. I'll get it up tomorrow. So they're very, um, they're very proactive and they're very, they're not, they're always interested in real opinions that, you know, they feel will carry some interest to the readers. Anyway, having said that, I worked down in the Gulf for Crowley for a year. And there's a couple of things of interest. One is with these jack-up rigs, when they when they put those spuds down into the bottom, those those spuds, you know, the bottom down there is really soft. And you if you don't put the rig the spuds down evenly, and and one spud is like in a softer area of the bottom than the other, the, the rig will get off center and well, you know, it'll flip over because when those legs are up, the center of gravity is is high. They don't have a lot of stability. You know, it's a it's a piece, it's a flat a vessel with these huge steel posts that um, make it very unstable. I mean, they're stable, but they're easily, they're not like a, you know, big ship that can survive storms. How, how tall are those posts? Well, the, the water depth usually is 100, maybe not more than 100 feet where they jack up. Because the, the coastal, when you go out of Port Fouchon or out of the Louisiana coast there, it's relatively shallow out for quite a ways. A lot of those rigs are in very shallow water. And the other thing to remember is there, a lot of them are interconnected. There's a maze. If you look at the, um, the bottom charts, the bottom uh, topography out there, there are pipelines and wellheads everywhere. And you can't put down, you can't just go out and say, ooh, I'm going to drop my legs or anchor here. You might be dropping a leg right on top of a gas pipeline. In fact, the boat I worked on for Crowley before I was there had gotten written up for dropping an anchor on top of a pipeline and, and release and causing damage that released gas. And they had to get it fixed. It, you know, it was a big deal because obviously you have an explosion anyway. So it's, you have to be really careful where you're going and where you're dropping the legs. So I don't know if this happened, but it's conceivable 
that, you know, you get bad weather and you go, oh, we can't, we're not making any progress. The winds, the seas, we got to drop the legs is the only thing we can do. But you can't just say, oh, I'm going to drop them right here. You've got to look at the, the geodetic survey chart and figure out where you can drop them. And is so there's no pipelines, no wellheads, and the bottom is such that it'll support your three legs evenly. And there are places in the Gulf where there are potholes and ridges. And, you know, imagine if it's a big, you're over top some area where the topography is not that even, and you're trying to drop these legs to stable it, it can become um, fraught with peril quite easily. So I don't know, you know, once again, I only know what I've read, but it seems to me, you know, the events overtook them. They realized they got to turn into the wind, drop these legs, started dropping the legs, Maybe the seas got them on the beam. One leg's down, two legs are up. Who knows? Usually you drop them together so you don't have uneven weight distribution. So, and they go slowly. It's not, they go, it's like, it's not a fast process. Not like, hey, run to the forecastle and throw the anchor over. Um, so you've, I think they got overwhelmed by the events. Our friend Captain Sonny Perkins uh, spent, uh, uh, again, uh, too much of his career down the Gulf oil supply tugs, anchor tugs. Right. And he says, you thought it was thick then. It's way thicker now. But what he used to do, anchoring rigs, is obsolete now. Oh, well, yeah. They don't anchor them the way they used to. Right. Um, float and uh, have spuds and stuff. And he speaks of the shallowness of the water uh, for a good ways out and then deep, deep canyons. Yeah, the Gulf after that. Crowley, the vessel I was on, um, that Crowley owned at the time, they didn't have dynamic positioning. It had four anchors, two in the stern, two in the bow. And when we would go out with a, a dive operation to service, you know, the rigs and the pipeline, we had to go into a four point moor. So that's a really um, putting a vessel in a four point moor over a a spot on the ocean because the divers they want to be you have to put the midships of the vessel exactly yes yeah, that ain't easy <laughs> oh it is not that's <laughs> like oh, and i was the chief mate and i was the one who had to run around on deck with with a little boom mic and you know and a walkie-talkie and i take in 50 feet on the starboard core you know um the starboard aft anchor oh no let out 50 feet on the port bow anchor, you know and you so you're moving the boat, pulling it around to get it. And then if the wind or the seas or anything changed, you know, you have to readjust. So you had to think in, you know, five dimensions or whatever. If I take in here, how's that going to shift the boat? And we we're all doing it by, you know, maneuvering board. Uh, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, that works. And it was exhausting. I only did it for a year because it was so exhausting. I mean, and nobody realizes i mean we're working 20 hour days and as soon as the divers were done were at a job you immediately had to pull the anchors and go to the next job so there was no like downtime you're just like oh my god i hope it takes them like a day and a half to get this job done but sometimes it take you five or six seven hours to get in position and they go down and get the job done in 30 minutes oh yeah we're gonna replace the blowout plug and the riser we're done like motherfucker, sorry. It's like then immediately you got to pull all the anchors up. So you know it's it, it's rough work. It really is, and um, it changes. You're right that the technology changes. The 
skills. It's, it, there's nothing easy about it. While talking about working in the Gulf of Mexico, we got onto the subject of shoreside bosses ordering boats to stay out in bad weather. You know, money drives everything, or money drives too many things. That's what I should say. And a lot commercial vessels, when they're tied up at a dock, they've got port costs, and they're you know every foot of of dock space you take up costs money, and you have to pay for the dock services and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, if there's bad weather offshore and it's tenuous and, but the company that doesn't feel like it's really that bad. And so there is, unfortunately, I don't have an answer. I, it's unfortunate that so much uh, in terms of making money drives uh, what we do. It's hard to, hard to sometimes come to terms with that. Um you know, I experienced it. I mean, we, we all know that uh, El Faro was one of those cases where economics was driving um, how that vessel was operated and the decision-making process. And I, mm-hmm. I can, yeah, I'll tell you, and I'll just tell you one short story. When I was sailing yachts, when I was not in the service and I did yacht deliveries for a while, I actually got off a yacht um, that I was helping the, the owner deliver from Southwest Harbor to uh, the Caribbean. And it was in November because it got out of the Hinkley yard really late, not due to Hinkley, but due, the, due to the owner constantly making changes and demands and being a real dick. Uh, and we left after Thanksgiving in a snowstorm heading for the Caribbean. And um, we had to make it anyway, a really long sea story short. We had a lot of problems. And I basically told the guy to take a hike. The owner was on board. So it was me and the owner. It's just the two of us. And I took the boat into Ocean City, Maryland, tied it up the dock, told him he could go find another captain. And I got a bus and went home to Maine um, because the guy, everything the donor wanted to do was based upon economics. It was like, oh, no, my wife is due in Virgin Gorda on this date. And her airline, if we don't make it there, they'll charge her more for her airline. You know, all that stuff that and we had terrible offshore weather. It was Gales and I said we can't keep doing what you, we can't sail directly there. We need to go down the coast to get away south of these winter storms. Then we'll get south of thirty-two north or whatever, and then we might have to go down through the Bahamas, whatever. But it's the safe and prudent thing to do. And I point to these hurricane force lows on the weather facts. He go, oh, it can't be that bad. Just let's keep going. I'm like, God damn it, you want to kill yourself? So you know, I. And I never got any delivery jobs from Hinkley or Morris ever again, <laughs> which I was glad. But it was a it was awful. It was not seeming like. And so I, I don't have much patience. It's hard for me to um, resolve the the economic. You know, it when you go to sea, you got to be prepared for delays, changes. You got to be flexible, and if you try and set some hard, fast. This is, you know, our schedule and we're, damn it, we're going to keep to it. Oh man, you count me out. I don't want to be there. So did that guy, how did that guy do after you left? Ah, So yeah. So then he ranted and raved and he called up more. It was a Morris yacht. He called up Morris and Hinkley and told him I I was like the worst person. Why in the world did they recommend it? Anyway. So then they searched around and they found some other guys, uh, that were willing to deliver the boat. And um, 
they went down to Ocean City and I, I don't know the details, but they basically waited till they had a little window of opportunity and hightailed it out of there. And I guess they made it down to, you know, wherever they were going and they made it there, which I'm glad, you know, I'm glad they made it there, but it was like, I, you know, it's not my, that's not what I wanted. That's not what I'm going to do. So anyway, but there's a lot of pressure, you know, they, they, I guess my, what I'm trying to say is there's a, there's a lot of pressure. If you need the income or you're young and you're just trying to make a name for yourself or you think you're some, you know, who ya, who ya ocean sailor that, you know, 40 knots of wind is no big deal. Then it, I don't know. That's why people die. So anyway, it's better to be prudent. <laughs> yeah. I tell you, even when I was in the military driving big steel army vessels, I looked at those weather charts, morning, noon, and night, and I would do everything to avoid bad weather. I would slow down. I'd pull into port because I said, we're going to get there with the cargo and we're going to complete the mission, but we're not going to like go into some gale just thinking that it's not going to be a problem because you know what? It can, be. it can be a big problem. Yeah. Huge problem. So anyway, and sometimes you're caught. Sometimes, obviously, on a slow-moving sailboat crossing the ocean, you know, it's likely that you're going to have some bad weather, and you can, you should think that through and pick a route that's going to minimize, you know, risk management. Do a little. If I'm on my 32-foot creelock, maybe I don't want to take the Great Circle route through the North Atlantic. To you know, <laughs> maybe I go to the go to the uh, go to the Bermuda and the Azores, and you know, get there in one piece. So anyway. That's Michael Carr, U.S. Coast Guard retired. I expect we will be talking with him again sometime. Next, we're talking local. Maynard Bray is a name well-known in New England, and he donated his lifelong collection of photographs to the Penobscot Marine Museum, referred to as PMM. In this talk, John Johansson and I had with Mike Wheeler, digital collections curator at PMM, who is putting together a digital collection of Maynard's photos. It's a big project. Anyway, uh, I mean, you guys know a lot about him already, but for those who, who don't know him well, he, you know, he grew up on the, pretty much on the Rockland waterfront, post-war Rockland waterfront. And he, you know, was exposed to boats and photography from a pretty early age. His dad introduced him to Burt Snow. And I don't know, do you guys know who Burt Snow was? Yep. He wrote the yep. book, uh, Main Beam. Yeah. He was a police officer. That's why he writes different than most people. Aha. Uh -huh. You know, it's real short and sweet. That's it. I, yeah. I can sort of, I could, I could sort of imagine that from the little bit that Maynard's told me about him. But so he had a partner, Maurice McCusick, and they had a, you know, marine services company down there in Rockland. I don't think it lasted for all that long. Like it wasn't, you know, a couple of generations or anything. But they had this whole section of, um, uh, I can't remember which side of the waterfront it was, but, you know, it's, at least informally was, was known as Snow Marine Basin. And he was buddies with uh, Don Merchant. And, you know, Don and, and Maynard were birds of a feather. Uh, you know, they were uh, same, same age. Uh, they both loved boats and had early exposure to boats. And 
and carried cameras around with him. I, I think that I remember hearing Maynard say he, he swiped his mom's uh, medium format camera and, uh, you know, would um, carry that thing around with him. And, and they started taking pictures of, of boats because that's what fascinated them. They haunted the waterfront and hung out a lot at, at Snow Marine Basin and, and started to get to know these guys. And it's and it sounds to me like, you know, it was a really nice situation because they were very receptive to these young dudes who just wanted to know everything they could about, you know, who was coming and going on the waterfront and how boats were put together and, and um, how they were maintained and how they were handled. And they started, you know, when Don and Maynard were pretty young, they started giving them different tasks, boat related tasks to do around the yard. And that helped them get up the learning curve, um, you know, fairly quickly. It was an informal situation, just an informal mentorship, but I think they just, they ate it up and got to spend a lot of time on the water themselves and on their own little boats. We've got, we've got some pictures from, so we have, uh, as I think that I said, we have Don Merchant's photographs at the museum as well. And one of those, in one of those collections, we have photos of a little raft that those guys built and paddled around one of the coves for part of a day before it sank. Um, so uh, Maynard also, Maynard had a cousin, uh, Elmer Montgomery. There's another uh, local uh, maritime boat-related photo collection that we have at Penobscot Marine Museum. Um, and uh, Don was, uh, you know, was older than Maynard and had uh, spent some time building a boat of his own, I believe, and was also, a, you know, a hobbyist. Yeah, as we're saying, it was a hobbyist photographer. So Maynard had this early indoctrination that uh, it it kind of set a course for him for the rest of his life. And he, you know, he met, uh, of course, met Anne when they were still in high school, and they were two peas in a pod. They found that they both loved boats and spent a lot of time on the water together, and spent a lot of time with other people who owned boats and spent time on the water. Maynard uh, went to the University of Maine, ended up getting a, a BS in mechanical engineering up there. And uh, when he was finished, uh, the two of them moved down to Connecticut. I'm pretty sure that his first job was at uh, Electric Boat down in Groton. Uh, and after that, he, he was offered a position at Bath Ironworks and he stayed with them for about six years, ended up as their chief mechanical engineer. Uh, and after that, he did another six year stint at um, Mystic Sea Seaport. He was their shipyard supervisor, kind of, you know, looked after the, the fleet. And uh, when he and Anne left to move to Maine in the 70s, and by that time, they had had at least one Kid, maybe their oldest daughter. I can't remember how that all, the timeline for their family, but uh, Maynard actually stayed involved with Mystic for quite a long time. He would do, kind of was involved in wood sourcing for their restoration projects. Like he'd go down and meet with um, plantation and sawmill owners down south 
where they had a lot of good oak and other things. And, um, and, you know, he was kind of, um, you know, made sure that the museum or, or that uh, Mystic had a good relationship with these various suppliers. And uh, Maynard was a trustee at Mystic for quite a while. And he kind of advised them and he was involved in helping to rescue various collections of, of boat plans. And, uh, you know, and he also, as you guys know, he got this gig that he still has at uh, Wooden Boat Magazine as their technical editor. And, you know, he, when he moved to Maine, he, he met Benji Mendlowitz and uh, those guys are still friends and they've done a lot of work together. You know, most notably on the on the wooden boat calendars that Benji takes the photos for, and uh, Maynard writes the captions for. And Maynard uh, really has a way with words. You know, he's he's um, uh, he's well spoken and well written, and uh, just has a, a nice way of telling a story um, informally and, and clearly and, and succinctly. Um, and, uh, you know, throughout all of this, he owned boats of his own. He was constantly on the lookout for, uh, boats that interested him, boats that, uh, you know, often, often wooden boats, often traditional boats, but, but not always, uh, and basically boats that were, um, that were, um, interesting and, and beautifully made. I think, you know, that kind of aptly summarizes what, what has interested him. And he's, you know, owned at least a couple of Harrishoffs. He wrote a whole book about Aida, which was, uh, she was a shallow draft yawl. Was built, she was built in 26 and he owned, the Braves owned her for decades. Was I, I feel like I should remember, I wanna say 30, 40 years. Um, and he wrote a whole book about that, that Benji, I, I believe, took photographs for. He just gave me a copy of it. It's a wonderful book. Um, you know, so he was, you know, throughout all this time, he spent time on the, on the water with his family and got his kids used to sailing and rowing. And, uh, and I, you know, I think that's pretty much stayed with them. And, uh, you know, he almost always had a camera with him. So in in 2013, he donated his whole collection of black and white negatives to PMM. And we met him, not surprisingly, through Ben Fuller. Uh, so it was 2013 when I, when I met Maynard. And he has, uh, he has a bunch of later photographs that uh, he has talked to me a little bit about, which we, I think we'll eventually see. Uh, a bunch of color slides, I believe Kodachrome, which is, as you guys know, is a real nice film. And, and then it's digital stuff. Um, but the, the one uh, body of work that we don't have and, and probably never will is all the stuff he shot when he was working at Mystic because he was using their equipment. And so they're, you know, they're Mystic's photographs. Uh, it'd be awesome to get a look at that stuff too. Anyway, uh, yeah, so we've had Maynard's black and white work since 2013 and you know the plan is to digitize the whole thing we started back then um, and you know of course the main reason to digitize photographs is that more people see them I mean, if you get 
collections of prints and negatives sitting around on, on shelves and boxes. The only way anybody's ever gonna was ever gonna see them before digital digital imaging technology was if you printed them and put up an exhibit, you know, which was expensive to do and took a lot of time. And we still do that. We print stuff digitally, but uh, you know, this way you can share virtual exhibits online. You know, we can do interactive digital exhibits on our campus on the big touch screen that we have. Um, you know, kind of limitless possibilities. Share them on social media. Uh, and we... Um, Rosenfeld. Say again? The Rosenfeld Collection. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, there... You don't digitize photographs because you, you don't digitize photographs primarily because you want to preserve them. I mean, it's it's one reason you have to assume the photographs aren't going to last forever. But we have glass plates at the museum that are 100 years old that were well looked after, and they're still absolutely uh, you know absolutely pristine, and um, you know all the emulsion's still there, and you can see everything. Um, so that's not the main reason. Um, and when you digitize photographs, then you've got this whole other group of objects that you have to maintain meticulously. Digital objects are very volatile and fragile um, because, you know, the physical media that you use to store them are, um, you know, will degrade over time. And you know, file formats change over time and things can become unusable. You know, I, I think there's as much, I think there's many digital photographs that are stranded or, or lost for those reasons as there are, you know, analog photographs that were lost because somebody threw them in the trash. Um, but, you know, that said, the reasons for digitizing photographs are, you know, are significant. And, um, we just recently, and this is uh, something that is really worth mentioning, at, at an organization like a museum, you know, these kinds of projects, digitization projects, uh, it's the ones that are funded that get the most attention, as you can probably guess. And we just recently launched a funding campaign to put Maynard's collection on the front burner and, and move it along at a quicker pace. Uh, you know, we've still got Maynard here. Uh, he can still tell us, you know, anything that we should want to know about these photographs. John and I were talking about this earlier, the importance of, you know, catching these creators, photographers, while they're still around to hear them talk about the pictures that they took. Um, you know, most of the stuff we have was taken, you know, 60, 70, 100 years ago, and there's only so much you can learn about, about those photographs. Uh, because the people that took them are long gone. But um, so, that, you know, we've, we've uh, received some of that funding and it's, it's enabled us to hire a contract photographer and a contract cataloger. Because the other half of digitization is describing what you're digitizing. That's the chance to do it. You know, you, anything, any of the information that you have about a, a photograph gets recorded we call it metadata in, you know, museum and archive industry. 
gets recorded in a, in a database. Um, you can also record the information. You can embed it directly in an image file, which is something that we've, we've done to a limited extent. And, uh, you know, that way the information about the photos is, is always there. It's always with them. And of course, you know, the, the greatest thing about recording the information is that it tells the story that the picture can't tell by itself. It, it provides detail and context. And, uh, and then, you know, you put that stuff online so researchers and the public can access it and it becomes a very rich resource. Uh, and, you know, the information about maintenance photographs is, you know, a lot of it is kind of structured like data. You have all the vessel dimensions, you know, weight displacements, all that sort of thing. But then you have all the anecdotal information, stuff that nobody but Maynard would have known because he knew that boat at a particular time. He knew the owner. They had adventures together. He knew something about, you know, the restoration that the boat might have undergone. That stuff's priceless. And, uh, you know, not only does it make for interesting reading, but it, it's going to be a great help to anybody who's doing research. Um, so if, you know, for your listeners, anybody who's interested in, in learning more about this, this uh, funding campaign that's underway, you go to our, the museum's web, website, which is just www.penobscotmarinemuseum.org. Uh, there's a, uh, an image slideshow that starts right away. And the first slide is, uh, is about the Maynard Bray project. And you click on the name of the project and it'll take you right to the page. And you scroll down about halfway and there's, there's a, a document that talks about what we're doing and there's a button you can click if, you, if you're inclined to contribute to the project. You know, what, what, what he's offered is, is uh, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a treasure trove because it, the collection says so much about our you know, recent regional maritime history. And uh, there's just a lot to be gleaned there. It's, you know, it's, wonderful. it's wonderful for anybody who enjoys boats, uh, for anybody who's you know, researching a particular class of boat or wants to know how key pods were put together. Uh, uh, you know, one of the things that's interested me most to learn about Maynard and to see in his photographs is that he's got a good sense of aesthetics. You know, he knows what looks good to him and, and um, but he's also got, you know, this, this engineer's mind. And so he's fascinated by how things are put together. And uh, not, so not only has he taken a lot of photographs of, of uh, you know, of hulls in the water and out of the water, but he's taken a lot of, um, a lot of photos of, you know, details of joinery and this sort of thing. Uh, just because, you know, that's really lights him up. And, um, you know, that kind of stuff can be, you know, it's potentially going to be really useful to other people. Uh, so that's, um, in a nutshell, what, you know, what I know about Maynard and his photography and his passion and, and how we're carrying that forward. Okay. Um, how, many, how many photographs are in the uh, Maynard collection? Yeah, it's about uh, the 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 body of work that we have now is about it's about twenty thousand frames, 
And All taken by Maynard. With the exception of the ones that Ann took. Uh. <laughs> she, was, she was with him a lot, and she was actually quite a talented photographer. So anytime you see a picture with Maynard in it, it's probably taken by, by Ann. Huh. And um, uh, yeah, so about half of those have been, have been digitized. A little less than that cataloged. We've got about two thousand online right now. We're working on the next group. So you got approximately ten thousand photographs that somebody can look at online. How how are they cataloged? How would somebody sort through them? Yeah. So um, we, um, you know, the, there's a lot of information embedded in the description. So if somebody were interested in a particular um, class of sloop, for example, they could they could go onto our online database, and that's um, if you look around a little bit under the menu tab in collections, you'll see search our database, and it takes you right to a page where you can you can do kind of a detailed search. So you put Maynard's name in the in the field that's labeled collection, let's put Maynard, and um, in the description field, for example, you could put um, you know, Harishoff 12 and a half. And then any photographs that he took of Harishoff 12 and a half or photos that were you know, related would come up in a list. And you can look at each one of them. So that'd be one way to do it. You know, other, you know, people may be interested in searching geographically. Like I wanna see the photos that Maynard took in Stonington. You could do that. You could put Stonington in the place field after you put his name in collection. Everything under Stonington is going to come up. And of course, you know, anybody who's trouble, not everybody's familiar with using databases. We're always available to help walk people around in that, you know, what can seem like a jungle. But the information is pretty well organized and we're getting better at it over time. It's a, it's, it's a very, um, useful research tool for a lot of people who are trying to get specific information. That's very good that you have that. That's what we hope. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, it's, so we did this exhibit at Camden Public Library several years ago. We've been partnering with them during their maritime month, which is the whole month of April for for quite a few years. And we did an exhibit of Maynard and Don's work together. It was, you know, the, the earliest stuff that they did when they were palling around together. But I think it's getting close to time to do another um, dedicated Maynard exhibit. And I'm sure that's in the works, or will be. Well, I'd be looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, so just to make sure people who are, are interested, uh, why don't you give again how people can contribute to your, to your fundraiser for, for this? Sure. Thanks, Alan. Uh, yeah, so the museum's website is just what you might expect. It's penobscotmarinemuseum.org. And uh, when uh, the page opens up, you're on the first slide of a of, a, uh, of an image slideshow that walks you through kind of what's going on at the museum. The very first one is, is, is 
directs you to the Maynard Bray collection. So you just click on those words, Maynard Bray, I think it's Maynard Bray Project is how it appears on the web page. And that'll take you right to this, uh, this dedicated section of our site that you know, talks about the man and his work and has a few sample images. There's a Word doc on there that talks kind of in detail about this project that we're doing. And right below that, there's a button that allows one to donate. I, ho I, hope, uh, I hope we bring in some good money for you. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's incredibly worthwhile. Matt, do you have any other projects going on now that we should be talking about? Looking on all kinds of things there. Oh, we are, yeah. Well, uh, this is something um, that's very much worth mentioning. Uh, we uh, recently partnered with uh, Waterfall Arts and, uh, and a local photographer uh, named um, Kristen Robinson. Here we go. And um, Kristen has lived in Belfast since the 70s or 80s, I think, with her husband and began photographing the changing waterfront. And I, I think it was her idea to put together this exhibit of photography of, of the Belfast waterfront, you know, going back dating back to uh, shipbuilding days and, and coming up into more or less the present and features the work of some living photographers and several who are deceased. Uh, it's it's going to be a, a big show with some really interesting images. The 18th, there'll be an opening outdoors at Waterfall Arts. It's going to be very exciting. All the work there will be available for sale bunch of you know beautiful framed prints and that will end another boat talk on community radio weru fm blue hill thanks for supporting us